0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and chips and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe. Those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open and my partner Ravinder awaits you there now. You can log on by going to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room, so Ravinder, tell us all about it, please.
1: We have a a great chat room and a great group of people uh I always learn lots from them. Um, we share ideas. We grow together. That's what it's all about, is just learning more and more and having fun doing so. So if you can, if you are not driving or your boss isn't too mean, do come join us <laughs> online at ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. If
0: your boss isn't too Okay. In this week's Spotlight, I would like to discuss the idea of paradigms. The American physicist and philosopher Thomas Kuhn proposed the notion of paradigm cycles that can eventually lead to paradigm shifts. A paradigm shift is a construct that describes a fundamental change in the basic concepts and experimental practices of a scientific discipline. I'd like to suggest that perhaps we have our own paradigms and our own need at times for paradigm shifts. The Kuhn cycle, as it is known, has pre-science leading to science, followed by a model drift that leads to a model crisis and subsequently a model revolution, consequently a paradigm shift. By way of example, Physics is a field that has experienced pressure by many in the direction of a paradigm shift in the quantum model. There are multiple reasons for this, but an easy one to comprehend is the theory of special relativity that presumes that the speed of light in a vacuum, which is denoted by the the letter C, and you're probably familiar with E equals mc squared, is constant at around 3,000 kilometers a second. The constancy of the speed of light in a vacuum, and the fact that this is also the speed limit in the universe, are the cornerstones of the special theory of relativity. Now this theory is itself one of the fundamentals of modern physics. If C was not constant, or if it can be exceeded by any matter or energy, then a new physics would be needed. So when a team of research scientists in Italy reported that they found particles known as neutrinos traveling faster than light in their experiment, they had effectively challenged the existing paradigm in such a fundamental way as to potentially create a model crisis. Although the team in their experiment known as OPERA replicated their findings initially in 2011, They later discovered possible errors in their hardware and the crisis disappeared. Science is science precisely because it is able to challenge itself despite the difficulties that some pioneers might meet when they go up against the establishment. That said, science does move on. Now the point of this discussion, people often hold preconceived ideas about the world we live in. And these beliefs can blind us from alternative perspectives. Just this week, by way of example, I posted an article regarding consciousness, the title of which explains the thrust of the article Scientists Shed Light on the Biology of Consciousness. Right away, a visitor commented on this post, remarking, Absurdly ridiculous. So I asked, What do you mean? What's ridiculous? Well, it turned out that this person was convinced that consciousness could never be explained in biological terms, let alone be created by man. Now, during our exchanges, I linked several scientific findings and theories, including one from NIH and Max Tegmark's mathematical theory of consciousness. My visitor then turned his argument to the epiphenomena attached to consciousness as his final assertion for the fact that consciousness could not be an emergent property of biology. Now think about that for a moment. My concluding remark in our exchange sums it up for me. Assume for a moment that AI researchers are able to assemble consciousness. Now assume that our artificial intelligence begins to experience epiphenomena, just as you or I might. We don't have an explanation for this epiphenomena any more than we do today, but we still have consciousness, given this example. So the real question is not in the red herrings, but rather in the simple, straightforward assertion. Can we construct consciousness? When consciousness appears to exist in some AI system, then we can begin asking the questions, how does it differ from human consciousness, if at all? What is it that we want to define as special consciousness if we are uncomfortable with accepting man-made consciousness? Now, whether or not science is ever able to create consciousness per se is not what I'm getting at. No, rather the issue is one of our own personal paradigm shifts. I suspect there will be many in the coming years whether or not we wish this to be true. In my lifetime, I have seen much of what I learned in university to be false to fact. Science will march on, and we should all be open to marching with it, for closed minds will march nowhere. Indeed, they'll simply circle on themselves. My thoughts, what are yours, Ravinder?
1: You know, I found that um, all fascinating. You talk about the paradigm shifts and constructing consciousness, and that's all really intriguing. The Part that gets my attention more, though, is just the very practical element of how different groups hold on to their ideas. So the people in the area of science think that science is the god, and then there are people who think that science is dreadful, and they discard everything. They throw the baby out with the bathwater. They're not open to thinking things through differently. They just have preset ideas. I found it fascinating how you got to that, um, in your spotlight piece.
0: Well, I, I can't let something you said slide.
1: <laughs> you could, you know, but you won't.
0: Sometimes people use a label too broadly. Mm-hmm. So you say science thinks science is God. And, and I don't think that's true. You see, if I were to say that XYZ is a cynic, that would mean that they are not a skeptic. They're cynical beyond skepticism. Good skepticism has a doubt, needs some evidence. Science itself is a practice of observation. Um, and, And research is all, you know, about replication. So if I'm going to be a true scientist, I'm not going to see anything necessarily as God, what I'm going to see is the process is a process, a dynamic process of discovery. And I am going to maintain that open mind. And if I don't maintain that open mind, I'm no longer a scientist. I'm more akin to being a siloist.
1: Absolutely. You know, I was taking a shortcut. You know, I just jumped right to to the end when I was talking about science being that way I was talking about um, the group of people who believe science is that way so that it's to, it's all to do with bias you know if you believe science is good then you will accept anything that is presented to you without looking at the actual scientific techniques see whenever I hear anything that sounds you know Incredible and fascinating. I wanna know what the research design was behind it. Did they control for the factors that I can think of? What factors did they control of that I'm not thinking of? You know, there's there's a great deal more to it. But there are those who will accept everything on face value and there are those who will accept nothing on face value simply because they have a bias against it. So You know, that's really what I was talking about. Science is about thinking it all through, and we all need to practice thinking a whole lot more.
0: All right. So you're being a scientist and evaluating your science, and I have no issue with that. And there is both good and bad science. So that's just the world we live in today. We have covered on this show some of the hoax science, you know. Mm -hmm. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Our last show featured Joel Salinas, and he we discussed his life as a doctor with Mirror Touch Synesthesia and his new book, A Great Read, Mirror Touch. Elizabeth wrote, loved your guest. I can't imagine how difficult it must be for him to be a doctor, but I sure would like it if he were mine. CB remarked I don't have mirror squat. But I had to turn that stuff off. Who made who? The viewers or the doers? Yikes. <laughs> okay. Beth wrote, Wow, just being aware of the vast range of humanness is of so much value. It allows us to be more open to experiencing other phenomenon ourselves. Tammy wrote, Great show with Joel about synesthesia. I was almost crying listening to this my whole life. I felt overwhelmed with the same kind of things. A while back, I wrote you about my son having such dramatic reactions to cartoons and shows he will watch and actually experience and doing what they do so intensely, laughing or crying or in distress. Also with people and things. I feel this explains so much as I observed my son. Everything is very intense, but he's very smart, loving and happy. Your show made me feel so much better understanding this. Thanks for your great shows. It opens my mind. Well, thank you, Timmy. We appreciate that. Moving on, Bob wrote, the last two years or so, I've been using some of your Intertalk programs. I have lost 40 pounds and have kept it off for well over a year. I no longer procrastinate, especially with small projects. Even if I am watching TV and my wife asks me to do something, I get up and do it right then. She will sometimes say, I didn't expect you to stop watching your program. I'm very happy with the results from these programs because it's easy to see them. I am 73 and sleep most nice with some program playing all night long and still on my own business. Thank you. Well, thank you, Bob. And don't you dare play procrastination when I'm
1: I play strate- in my
0: supine position on the sofa.
1: I play strategic planning and peak performance. You should know that's my favorite one for getting <laughs> stuff done. But I hadn't thought about using it to get you to do to stuff. To jump up off sofa. <laughs> yeah,
0: okay. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But I do invite you to opine by emailing me at Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at com, or by joining me on Facebook. We sincerely appreciate your comments and feedback. Now to this week's show. How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain with our guest, Professor Lisa Feldman Barrett. So let me tell you a little about our guest. Lisa Feldman Barrett, Ph.D. is a university distinguished professor of psychology at Northeastern University with appointments at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital in psychiatry and radiology. She received a NIH Director's Pioneer Award for her research on emotion in the brain, and the 2018 APS Mentor Award for Lifetime Achievement. So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Lisa Feldman Barrett.
2: Oh, it's wonderful to be with you on your show. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Oh, it's indeed my pleasure. I enjoyed your book very much. It's a challenging read for me, I have to tell you that, and we'll get into that maybe in a little bit, but... We like to know three things on this show, Professor Barrett. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? So if we can begin by looking a little bit at, at, at who this messenger is, how did you become inspired to study emotions? What in your life you know, brought that about?
2: Well, when I went to graduate school, I, I went to graduate school to um... – learn how to be a psychotherapist and to do research on um, people's well-being, to try to understand. Uh, actually, I was very interested in self-esteem and I was studying uh, this particular model which stated the hypothesis that when people compare their themselves, what they believe themselves to be like, to their ideal standards, what they ideally would like to be like. If there is a discrepancy, then they'll feel depressed. And if they compare themselves to their view of themselves, as they actually are, to their standards or to other people's standards for them, if they come up wanting, they'll feel anxious. So this required me to be able to measure sadness and fear, depression and anxiety. And I tried... uh, to replicate an existing study in the that was published in the in the literature, and I was not able to do it. And so I tried again, and I wasn't able to do it. And I tried eight times to replicate studies that had been published, and I wasn't able to do it. And my first uh, response to this after three years of trying to, um, you know, uh, replicate these experiments. <laughs> Um, was that maybe I wasn't cut out to be a scientist, and in fact, maybe I should just stick to, um, you know, learning how to be a therapist. But I had worked in labs before I went to graduate school, and so one of the things that I had learned was to look very carefully at the data that I had collected, and I noticed across eight studies uh, that I had run across three years that, in fact, it wasn't that I was failing to replicate other people. It's that I was replicating myself again and again and again. And what I was finding was that um, people, when they report how they feel on average, they, um, if they're feeling anxious, they're also feeling depressed. And if they report feeling fearful, they also report feeling sad and angry and guilty and so on. And if they report feeling um, You know, happy, then they also report feeling compassionate and feeling pride and so on and so forth. So I thought, well, it must be the case that I've sampled people who just don't tell their emotions apart from one another very well because I, you know, I wasn't an expert in emotion. I wasn't studying emotion. I figured, well, maybe the problem here is that I'm just asking people how they feel and I have to find research on objective ways of measuring emotion so that I can detect someone's anxiety or depression or detect their fear uh, or sadness without actually asking them. And, you know, I thought, well, everybody knows that emotions uh, have universal expressions. When you're feeling uh, angry, you, you scowl like everybody does around the world, and everyone can recognize this as a scowl. Um, when you're uh, in an emotion, you your um, body is supposed to take on a particular pattern, like a fingerprint that you can use to identify. You know, if your heart's supposed to, in fear, for example, your heart will race and, and, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, and so I sort of systematically went through the literature thinking, well, all I have to do is find out how to objectively measure emotions, and then I'm all set and I can go back to my original uh, research plan. And, you know, here
0: we are 25 years later. Interesting. Now, you, you, you've touched on so many areas that I want to get into, and, and some of them rather deeply, because your model challenges the existing standard, if you will, of how we think about emotions. And and, and I think, you know, it takes a great deal of courage to champion work that runs contrary to the generally accepted scientific way of seeing things, Uh, to say nothing of, you know, actually pioneering uh, this perspective as you have. I mean, our basic beliefs regarding emotions are at least as old as Plato, and you point that out in our book, in your book, and they're pretty well ingrained in everyone. And so, you know, when I read that, I, I reflected on Aristotle's claims and then the difficulty that Galileo would have had or did have even. Uh, When he rejected out of hand the notion that, you know, two different weights fell at different speeds. So my question to you then is, what sort of resistance have you met with uh, in regard to advancing your ideas?
2: Well, I think, um, you know, I think at first uh, there was some there was pretty strong resistance I think in general scientists like myself um, are pretty skeptical people, right? So we want to see not just one or two experiments um, that uh, support a hypothesis, but we want to see hundreds and we want to see them using lots of different methods in lots of different domains and so I think at first there was some skepticism. On the other hand, I will tell you that even though This particular model that I've proposed, I actually refer to it as a theory. I think I'm on pretty good ground to do that, you know, because in science a theory is a set of hypotheses or ideas that have a a lot of evidence to back them up. And although I don't think we know everything about how emotions are made, I think we know quite a bit at this point. Um, And, uh, you know, in my book I describe research from many different domains of study and I think, you know, the truth is that this particular theory that I've proposed is not completely novel to me in the sense that there, ha- you know, I stand, uh, like all scientists, on the shoulders of giants. And there have been people, for as long as our uh, common sense, classical view of emotion has been around, um, this view, for example, that you mentioned, um, Plato and so on. For as long as that view's been around, there has also been people who've criticized it, who've pointed out observations that don't fit um, with it. And so what I've really done in this book is I've just amassed um, a, a tremendous amount of evidence, not only to call that uh, model into question, but to actually show um, support for a whole different way of thinking about how emotions are made. And the, the research, you know, in and of itself is really interesting, but what I've tried to do in the book is um, talk about it in a playful, somewhat entertaining way to show people how, not only how interesting science uh, is, but also um, just, uh, you know, how useful it can be. And I think since, uh, in the last couple of years, I think there's been really a an initiation of what you might call, what you have, you know, you're talking about a paradigm shift, a CUNY and paradigm shift. I think that's really what we're seeing. Um, And I think, so I think in psychology, um, many scientists, but particularly younger scientists, um, have really, uh, you know, they come to the field with not a lot of preconceptions, and frankly, their careers aren't, you know, yoked or um, chained to a particular point of view. So they have Their minds are much more open. And I think they have embraced this theoretical view really, um, you know, with a lot of enthusiasm. I think, um, you know, I work with, uh, I talk to a lot of engineers and computer scientists and even physicists. And um, as you were mentioning, you know, physics went through uh, a pair, actually, it's gone through several paradigm changes. and so, you know, I think there's a lot of sympathy there as well for, for this particular theoretical approach that I'm proposing. I think the people who have the hardest time, um, who, who push back the hardest, are the ones who have, you know, their careers uh, have been um, uh, focused on studying emotion from the point of view of the classical model. And I think it's really important to point out that even though some of their hypotheses might not be correct the work they've done you know is um is crucial to um scientific progress we i wouldn't have done a lot of the work that i've done if i hadn't read their work do you know what i mean so i think uh you know we have to give credit where credit is due even even when um people's hypotheses don't necessarily pan out in the long run
0: true now to that end and and i don't mean this in any um attacking way i guess i'm going to play devil's advocate here for a second because i would like your response to this this is a criticism of your work and it basically i'm going to quote here uh her criticisms are valid In some respects, her alternative makes sense. Anger, after all, can manifest as both lashing out violently or smiling while plotting another's misfortune. But in getting to her conclusion, she constructs a dubious straw man, which she dubs the classical view of emotion. According to her, the establishment's classical view espouses that each emotion has a distinct Physiological state, heart rate, sweating, etc., something you just discussed, that dogs and flies alike can feel terror, that emotions are objectively real in the sense that raindrops or flowers are real, and so on. Even her first year psychology undergraduates would recognize this so called classical view as farcical and contrary to the best available evidence. And this leaves Barrett looking like she's fighting an opponent who doesn't exist. How do you answer that, Professor?
2: Well, I would say that whoever wrote that um, hasn't re- picked up a journal article in the last 25 years.
0: <laughs> so, okay.
2: You know, I mean, here's the thing. Is it true that the evidence doesn't um, uh, support a classical view? Absolutely. In fact, that's, I've been writing about that for the last, uh, 10 years writing reviews, doing meta-analyses, which are statistical summaries of hundreds of studies. I'm, no, I'm certainly not the only one. Um, I'm just part of a larger community of scientists who have been pointing this out again and again and again. That being said, if you pick up most journal articles, if you pick up every single textbook, actually, um, if you pick in psychology, like an intro textbook, if you look in um, uh, chapters and reviews and so on, what you will see is um, claims like um, emotions are certain emotions are universal. The, the expressions of these emotions are universal and our ability to recognize these expressions are universal. In fact, Paul Ekman, who is a very esteemed scientist, did a survey that he published in 2016 in right. a journal, a very prestigious journal, called uh, Perspectives on Psychological Science. And he surveyed a bunch of scientists, and 80% of them said that they believed that emotions were universal and had universal expressions. Mm-hmm. That is a fingerprint. A universal expression means I can look at your face, and based on your face, I can recognize what emotion you're having, because there's a one-to-one correspondence with um, between um, what you're feeling and what's on your face
1: now no,
2: I, let me let me just let me just say this please. has been proposed for I can um, point you to journal articles that were published you know this year which make these kinds of claims and claims you don't similar have claims to, yeah. are made about the body I could give you quotes so I think you know is it the case that um, that the classical view, which we haven't really defined for your viewers, right? But um, or your listeners. So I'm assuming we'll, we'll get to that. But um, you know, the classical view isn't is saying that there's a that there's a fingerprint, and just like your own fingerprint, you know, when you press your finger against um, a piece of paper, uh, you know, or against a doorway, a door handle, or on a piece of wood or so on, your fingerprint doesn't look exactly the same every single time. I mean, there are slight variations based on the temperature of your skin or how much dirt is on the surface or how pliable the surface is. So each time your fingerprint um, is slightly different, but still there's enough of a resemblance from time each instance that your fingerprint is um, uniquely identifying you from uh, other individuals. And that's because you actually do have a set of ridges on your, on your the finger, uh, the pad of your finger. So the fingerprint hypothesis, which is really comes from the classical view, doesn't say that every time you're angry, your scowl will be identical in every single, um, you know, physical aspect, but that each time it's going to be similar enough that I should be able to just look at your face, and your face should speak for itself about the. Um, the, uh, the emotional state that you're in, and anybody who claims that the classical view doesn't really make this hypothesis should, you know, pick up uh, <laughs> pick up a journal article and, and read sure, it. Sure, I mean, of course it, it does. Yeah. Right.
0: We've got a break coming up. When we come back, I'll, we'll pick it up. In fact, we'll we'll I'll have you define the classical view. And then I want to address just exactly where you are because I spent many, many years as a lie detection examiner uh, carrying out uh, interrogations, and law enforcement is thoroughly trained in the art that you're describing, that you talk about uh, in reference to the television series Uh, Lie to Me. So let's just go into that and see if we can't flesh that out a little bit more. All right? We're speaking with Professor Lisa Feldman Barrett about her life, work, and book, How Emotions Are Made. You can learn more about our guest and her work by visiting our website at lisafeldmanbarrett.com. Now we have a video for you in our chat room featuring our guest discussing cartoon science and how emotions are made. So if you're not in the chat room already, now's the time to get over there, and you can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do Steve. Do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative
2: Enlightenment
1: with Eldon Taylor.
0: A
2: silent battle has been raging for the territory of your mind. Like a virulent virus, the effects are spreading. In Gotcha, Eldon Taylor explores the 24/7 bombardment of information designed to manage your thinking. He demonstrates how new soundbites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture. And this results in framing and reframing classical positions, causing adjustments to personal values and history itself. Your every decision process is being managed and manipulated. Gotcha exposes the arrival of the Orwellian age in full-blown technicolor. In laying bare the current uses of the many sophisticated techniques, Eldon reveals what it is we need to do in order to avoid allowing others to puppet our thoughts. For details, go to eldentaylorcom backslash gotcha.
0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Lisa Lisa Feldman Barrett about her life, work, and book, How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. It is a, uh, I recommend this one. It's a challenging book for me because it hits on many areas that I personally have been, I've, I've leaned the other direction, but it is a very compelling book, and it's certainly something I think you'll all want to read. Now we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them. Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. And if you're a regular listener, you know by now it's a new hobby of mine, and I'm working on a book where all of our wonderful guests who share their music may find their comments included. Fair warning, Professor. So we just played some of Walk Through the World. Tell us, why is this music important to you, and how does it inform us about who you are?
2: Well, first of all, I think it's important um, to maintain a, I don't know, a certain curiosity about the world, you know? I think um, uh, I think being curious um, is... Uh, is a great gift that you can cultivate for yourself and that you can give to your children. And I think the song, you know, embodies that a little bit. I think we are social animals. You know, we regulate each other's nervous systems. Um, The best thing for a a human nervous system is another human. The worst thing for a human nervous (laughs) system sometimes is also another human. Um, But um, walking through the world with someone means... That um, you know that 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 you have each other's back. That you um, that you're there through thick and thin. That you um, that you well to use the scientific term that you regulate each other's nervous systems. We do this as humans. We lots of animals are social animals. Lots of animals regulate the nervous systems of the other members of their species, but humans do it in a in a a broad array of ways. So I think that's a reason as well, and then you know the, the the more the most personal reason is that this is the song I was listening to when I was getting dressed for my the first date with my uh, the the man who eventually became my husband who I've been married to for over 20 years. So.
0: All right, now we got the real truth. You got the real dirt. <laughs> I love it. I, real... love it. I love it. I love it. Yes, that's great. Okay, Professor. Uh, maybe I was amiss. I, 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 you know, I read your book. I know the material. There's so many things I want to ask. Um, let's back up. The, the traditional classical view of emotion. We're hardwired for it. Certain areas of the brain, or uh, where these emotions reside. Dot, dot, dot. Tell us how your perspective differs from that classical view please
2: sure so i should say that the classical view of emotion isn't a single model it's a you know it's a family of models yes Um, so so the idea as you said exactly that the idea is that um emotions come baked into the brain at birth that you have um specific neurons either in a region of the brain or in a network of the brain um for specific emotions so for example. The amygdala is a, a, a small um, cluster of um, nuclei, clusters of cells in the subcortical part of your brain, which is purportedly the, the home of fear. And the idea is that um, something happens in the world, like uh, a snake sl- slithers in front of you, and it triggers these neurons which have been lying dormant. And as a consequence, you make a specific facial expression, you maybe, you know, your eyes widen um, and you have a startled look on your face. The idea is everyone around the world makes this expression and can recognize it, that the neurons trigger a specific physical state of the body in your heart and lungs and so on, and that you will um, make a specific action or you'll have a a tendency to make that action, like you'll run, let's say, or freeze. And um, when you look at the scientific evidence, though, this is not at all what you see. So, for example, um, uh, the amygdala is a brain region that shows an increase in activity about in about 30% of the experiments, uh, brain imaging experiments um, of fear which is more than what you would expect by chance, um, but it's certainly not what you would expect if the neurons, you know, that were dedicated to fear lived in the amygdala. You would expect it to be much higher, like 80 or 90%, assuming you had some error in your experiment. And even more importantly, you see um, the amygdala is uh, a, a, a brain region that's engaged in many, many different emotions. In fact, every emotion that's ever been studied um, has a very large proportion of experiments showing an increase in amygdala activity. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if I just showed you, Alden, a face that you'd never seen before that was not making any expression at all, just a face at rest, you, you would have a massive amygdala response. Um, because that face is novel to you. So it turns out the amygdala is very responsive to novelty. It's very responsive to uncertainty. It's very responsive to things that we don't predict. And we could talk, I could continue to give you a lot of evidence, but, you know, for example, there are people who have lesions of the amygdala, basically no longer functioning amygdala. In fact, there's this example of these two, um, these twins, monozygotic twins one of whom uh, both have amygdala damage, but one has impairments in fear, in experiencing fear and in, re- and in perceiving fear in other people. The other twin has um, no fear-related deficits. She experiences fear and, you know, and perceives it just fine. So instead, what the evidence seems to suggest is, is something um, that biologists call degeneracy, which is that um, you don't have one circuit for um an emotion you have multiple circuits for you there are many ways that your brain can make an emotion some might you know some ways that your brain makes fear can involve the amygdala but but many uh don't for example um and i could take you through evidence um uh on facial movements and on on, you know, changes in your body and so on that are exactly the same, right? So instead of fingerprints, what we see is a lot of variation. It's not random. It's meaningful variation that's tied to the situation. And this is important because, you know, Darwin um, wrote this uh, book you might have heard of, you know, called On the Origin of Species. And in this book, he, you know, a lot of people think that, that Darwin's greatest Um, conceptual innovation was the observation of natural selection. But in fact, Darwin, um, part of Darwin's paradigm shift in biology was that he redefined what a biological category was. So before Darwin, people used to have this fingerprint model of biological categories. You know, there's one perfect cocker spaniel with a perfect coat thickness and a perfect tail length and perfect ears and so on. And along came, and every, you know, all the other individuals who varied from this perfection were considered error, you know, like inferior individuals. And along comes Darwin.
0: Excuse me, Professor, are you talking about the origin of the species or are you talking about his book, The Expression of Emotions in Man and Animals?
2: I'm talking about On the Origin of Species.
0: Okay.
1: So
2: in his book, On the Origin of Species, he um, redefines what a biological category is, he shows how. There is no fingerprint, you know. There is no perfect, ideal instance of a species. Instead, he defines a species. He characterizes it as a conceptual category filled with variation. Right. Um, and so, the ideal, you know, cocker spaniel is just um, an image that we have. It's a kind of an abstraction. And okay. there's a there was a, an evolutionary biologist named Ernst Mayr who wrote that Darwin's Great um, paradigm shift in biology occurred because he vanquished um, the idea of fingerprints um, from uh, from biology. And there's a you know philosophers and scientists have a have a fancy name for this. They call it essentialism, which I discuss in my book. Interestingly, though, um, so our work I think and the work of many other scientists shows really clearly that emotions are um, they are conceptual categories filled with, filled with variation that is tied to the situation in exactly the way that um, Darwin, in a very similar way to the way that Darwin talked about what a species is. Your question, though, um, is related to the fact that, you know, uh, about a decade after Darwin wrote this, uh, you know, really tr- paradigm-changing book, he wrote um, a book on emotion um, that was filled with essentialism, filled with the idea of fingerprints. And so, to some extent, it's a very un-Darwinian book by Darwin, right. which I discussed right. in my book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the classical view of emotion is very similar um, to, um, it really derives uh, from Darwin's um, book called uh, The Expression of the Emotion in Men and Animals, whereas... The theory of constructed emotion that I discuss in my book is much more consistent with um, the insights and observations that Darwin made in On the Origin
0: origin of the Species. Gotcha. Okay. So, and and I don't mean to hurry you, but we've got like 10 minutes, nine minutes, actually. So, uh, Professor you believe that we construct these emotions that they are not hardwired explain how that happens
2: sure i would say but let me just say that i don't just believe that this is the case i think that the evidence is pretty clear that this is the case and um what i would say is this that your brain is not filled with a bunch of um, separate organs, one for anger, one for fear, one for thinking, one for seeing, and so on, your brain um, is actually filled with networks that are multi-purpose, meaning they're kind of like all-purpose ingredients, just like you would go into your kitchen and find flour and salt and water, and you can make uh, a whole bunch of different recipes um, with those ingredients, and even some that aren't food, like, you know, glue, for example. In the same way, your uh, your brain has these networks. And these networks, um, you know, work together in various different recipes to make different instances of anger and sadness and fear and happiness and pride. And they even make instances of thinking and remembering and seeing and so on. Um, So that's the first uh, insight that comes from the book. And the second insight that comes from the book is that it feels to us as if our brains are reacting to things in the world, but actually our brains aren't wired that way at all. In fact, no brain is anatomically wired that way. And we can see the evidence from not just anatomy, but also from physiology and from signal electrical signal processing and, um, and even from um, experimental studies that what your brain is doing in any given instance is it's not reacting to things in the world. It's predicting what's going to happen next. So your brain is constantly guessing what's going to happen next. And these guesses are the basis of your emotions. And this happens entirely outside your awareness. So for example, right now, it may feel to you as if you're listening to my words and reacting to them. But in fact, your brain is running a set of predictions, and you're predicting every single word that comes out of my
0: mouth that you're exactly. about to say. Exactly.
2: And if I had said, you <laughs> Was know, Was that what, a my deliberate ear?
0: pause to get me to do that?
2: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and if I had said ear or nose or some other orifice of my body, you'd be really surprised, right? And That's But we don't correct. walk around being surprised all the time. Sometimes we're surprised, but for the most part, our brains are predicting every single thing that we will see and hear and feel um, you know, in, the, in an upcoming instance. And um, knowing this um, knowing that the brain, this is how the brain works, um, gives us uh, a lot of, um, a lot more control, and therefore a lot more power over, um, you know, uh, what our lives are like and and what we feel in any given instant.
0: Tell tell us this, okay? If we are constructing the emotions and and we're anticipating, uh, as you say, obviously. A lot of what we anticipate isn't what really happens in the world. What what would you suggest we do uh, to improve the quality of our lives or to, you know, enhance our emotional states?
2: Yeah. So there, are, are I go through this in a couple of chapters in the book based on the science, and um, I would say you know a couple of things, and and I have to say one some of them sound a little um, you know they sound. Uh, surprising maybe. Um, One of them is um, to learn new emotion words. So your brain uses knowledge about emotion, like what what scientists call concepts, um, Mm -hmm. to make these guesses. Uh, And so learning more emotion, expanding your emotion vocabulary and learning more emotion words, even learning concepts for emotion that are from other cultures that don't exist in English um, is actually very beneficial not only to um, improving your emotional life, but it actually has uh, implications for your health as well. And, um, you know, teaching kids, for example, to expand their vocabularies for emotion actually improves their grades in school. So, um, and I explain why this is the case, you know, in the book. So that's one thing. You do thing.
0: great job yeah. on that. I've been...
2: <clears throat> and the second thing, which sounds like I'm being a mother, probably more than a neuroscientist, but I am actually speaking like a neuroscientist here when I say this, is um, to um, make sure that you keep your body as healthy as you can. So it turns out that your brain, as it's making these guesses, it's also regulating the systems of your body. Um, you know, you can think about your, um, your brain like it's the financial center of a company and um, just like a company, a uh, financial center of a company tries to keep all of its budgets in balance across various parts of the company, your brain is trying to keep in balance uh, all of the systems in your body, you know your, your cardiovascular system, your, for your heart, your respiratory system for your lungs, your immune system, metabolism, and so on. And when your body's budget is out of balance, um, when you're not eating well, when you're not sleeping enough, when you don't get enough exercise, you end up feeling the sensations from your body as a consequence as um, unpleasant feelings. So you feel like crap, basically, and that presents you with a, your brain with a raw ingredient to make a lot of negative emotion. So just doing, you know, just getting enough sleep and and eating um, properly to get enough energy and um, getting enough exercise can actually um, make an astounding difference in um, how people uh, feel in a moment-to-moment way. And the third thing I'll suggest, although there are many other suggestions in the book, is to try to cultivate new experiences when you can. Because your brain is using past experiences as an ingredient to make emotions in the present. So your brain is using its past to make predictions about the future, the immediate future which will become the present. And so when you're not feeling terribly burdened, you can cultivate new experiences today that become the seeds uh, for new predictions that your brain makes very effortlessly in the future.
0: Wonderful advice. It is a great read. I suggest all of you get a hold of the copy and read it yourselves. How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain by Lisa Feldman Barrett. Professor, we appreciate your willingness to uh, discuss and share your work with us. I'd love to have you come back on the show. I have so many other questions here, especially having to do with uh, how speech itself can be dangerous. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place, and do tell your friends. Until then, remember, wherever you are in the world, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.